it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, May the 4th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. We are broadcasting live from the Fox News Bureau in Los Angeles, California, heading back to D.C. later this evening. Thank you so much for tuning in every single weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Those three hours are live. You can listen as we air. If you can't catch all of those hours as we air, there's a podcast that is free. It is on demand, no charge to you, shortly after the show is over. That's when it populates. It is growing in popularity big time. GuyBensonShow.com is the website. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcasts.com or grab our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Here on the show today, we have Josh Krasauer. He'll join us later on this hour talking about some of the election results last night, the primaries, particularly in Ohio, certainly the outcome that President Trump was looking for in the Senate race. We'll get Josh's reaction to that and more. Coming up later in the next hour, Sandra Smith, our colleague at Fox News, she'll be here to break down the new rate hike from the Fed just announced minutes ago. What's the impact on the economy? What does it mean for inflation? We'll ask Sandra about all of that. Andy McCarthy former federal prosecutor, legal expert. He will join us also in our middle hour talking about abortion jurisprudence and that leak at the Supreme Court. Interested to get Andy's take. And in our final hour, we will welcome back to the show Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican of Texas. He represents a border district down there in Texas. I was just there last week, and we will get the very latest from him. As we come on the air today, I want to begin on the same subject that we started yesterday's program on, which is the Supreme Court and abortion. And if you missed yesterday's show or sort of curious what my thoughts were about all these reports and the leaked document and what appears to be the looming toppling of the existing Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood binding precedent, you can go back to the podcast from yesterday and listen to the first three segments. I dedicated three consecutive segments to open to get through and work through and walk through a lot of my thoughts for all of you. It's a big topic. It's a complicated one. It's a controversial one. And I wanted to dedicate some real time to it and not just give you a handful of talking points. I wanted to dig a little bit deeper. And in some ways, we're kind of doing the types of shows that I was expecting to do maybe in June when this decision was released because there seemed to be at least a very strong indication that there were going to be six votes to uphold the Mississippi law, a 15-week abortion ban. And based on the Politico leak, it seems as though they are going to go further. At least five of the uh, justices are going to. That was part of the speculation already. And so we've just kind of accelerated the process, and we've gotten to this conversation and this debate, which is heated for obvious reasons. It has gotten unhinged in some quarters. In the last 24 or 48 hours, but we've pushed it ahead to early May. And we're having these discussions now. 
I want to talk about a few specific data points. And in fact, these came out just after we got off the air yesterday. I was tweeting about them at Guy P. Benson. I've written about it today at townhall.com on the tip sheet. And I want to talk in this specific case about public opinion. And let me just stipulate my view on abortion and my pro-life leanings and beliefs would not change even if the polls reflected that my view was unpopular. To me, the ethical, moral, scientific questions are what they are. And we can let the chips fall as they may based on how the American people feel about these things. However, I do think that it's useful to look at public opinion polling to illustrate some really important points that you are not going to hear about in a lot of the mainstream coverage when you watch the news, when you are flipping through your friends' you know, Instagram stories or thumbing through Twitter and you're seeing all these reactions and, you know, actors and singers and, and all these things being put out into the bloodstream. If you only listen to kind of like the elite tastemakers in our society and the news media, you would think that abortion is like an 80-20 issue where it's people who value women versus a tiny fringe of religious zealots. That's kind of how it's portrayed, and that's just not accurate. So Fox News happened to have just taken a poll about abortion at the end of April going into early May before this leak occurred. Now, my guess is they were asking the question ahead of the announcement and the actual publication as scheduled of this decision. The Dobbs decision is what it's called. And it just became immediately relevant like two days later. So this is brand new, fresh data from the Fox News polling team, and they are viewed as a high-quality polling team. Now, some people say, oh, well, it's just a Fox News poll. It's a bipartisan, nonpartisan poll that is actually quite respected in the polling world. So let's just dispense with that sort of cheap talking point that some people might use. And also, this data actually reflects a lot a huge, wide raft of polling data over many years. So, number one, the survey found that a large majority of Americans, a substantial majority of Americans, oppose overturning Roe versus Wade. They don't want the Supreme Court to do that. That's a substantial majority. So you see a lot of people sharing that outcome. However, the same poll asked additional questions about abortion policy, and this is where I think the rub is. This, I think, illustrates the success, frankly, of the misinformation campaign about what Roe versus Wade actually means. It's pretty clear to me that many, many, many Americans have been led to believe, wrongly, and they've been led, I think, deliberately down this path, to believe that the Supreme Court striking down Roe versus Wade or supplanting it with a new policy or a new precedent would be tantamount to, would be synonymous with abortion being illegal in America. Like Rovers, uh, Roe goes away, abortion then overnight becomes illegal. That's just not true. It's not even close to true, as we explained yesterday. It just reassigns the task of abortion policy, appropriately, I believe, to the states, where the people's representatives will craft policies in line with what the electorate in those states believe. That's what it used to be. 
That's what apparently it is going to be. Again, that is a far cry from a blanket abortion ban. You'll have a bunch of states where abortion is extremely available, paid for by taxpayers, all the way up to the moment of birth. That's going to be the case in some of these hardcore blue states. They just added that, in my view, very inhumane law in Colorado. You'll have other states that are much more restrictive, and then some that fall kind of in the middle, closer to where most Americans are. So in this Fox News poll, yes, it found that a substantial majority are against Roe versus Wade going away. However, then they asked this. This is the point I wanted to get to. Would you support a ban on abortion in your state after 15 weeks? Which, again, is a very mainstream position, not just here in the country, but if you look at the international norms. We are an outlier globally on abortion. We are much more permissive, much farther into the pregnancy than the rest of the world. And almost all the developed world. We're sort of with North Korea on this policy, which I think is really quite appalling. So would you, the poll asked, support a 15-week abortion ban in your state? There is double-digit support. Like the margin is double digits. A majority, a significant majority, is in favor of that type of law in their state, which is the Mississippi law in the Dobbs case, a newly passed law in Florida is 15 weeks. That is a double-digit margin in support. Then they asked about the six-week abortion ban. So the heartbeat bill, where the baby starts to have a heartbeat that's detectable, that's the Texas bill. And now the Texas law, that's been in place now for a while. A slim majority favors that, 50 to 46 percent. And that is sort of, you know, pushing the boundaries of some of the more restrictive laws anywhere in the country, that has a 50% majority in favor of it. So how can you really square these outcomes that are in the exact same poll? I think it goes back to the misinformation campaign over decades where people conflate Roe versus Wade going away with abortion being completely bad. Not true. If Roe gets downgraded or supplanted, which appears like that's going to be the case based on this leak, states will have the opportunity to do things that they couldn't have done under the Roe and Casey precedent. Like what these American data points are showing in terms of the actual polling results, not just in the new Fox News poll, but a bunch of other polls, 12-week bans, 15-week bans, 20-week bans, even the six-week ban – has quite a lot of public support. By the way, the 15-week ban that was asked in this poll, double-digit support among women. I know we're always told this is all about an attack on women. The women of America support a 15-week ban by 10 points. Under the currently existing, perhaps soon to go away, legal precedent, these types of laws were not allowed. States couldn't pass them. They were deemed to be unconstitutional under Roe. A lot of Americans clearly don't understand that because they want Roe in place in their minds so that there are at least some abortions allowed somewhere. That is what most Americans believe. But they also want states to have the opportunity to pass common sense limitations and restrictions to bring us in line with, like, what they have in France, for example. France has more significant 
restrictions on abortion than we have in the United States. Right. And so the American people say, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Let's, you know, maybe after the first trimester, let's not allow most abortions. Let's limit them at that point because, you know, those babies have developed and they're getting closer to the point of birth. And at some point they can start to feel pain and it gets to be barbarism at some stage to kill these unborn children. And where that line is drawn is really the crux of this debate. That's what it boils down to. And what the Fox News poll shows is that people would like that line to be drawn somewhere kind of in the middle, but more reasonable and not as late as it has been in the past. And that is only permissible. That's only allowed to happen if Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood, if that existing precedent no longer applies. So there's a contradiction there. You can say it's even a little bit incoherent. Abortion views, public opinion, are complex in this country. And I think there are some hardcore, and I said this yesterday, some hardcore activists on both sides of the issue that wouldn't really want to admit that. And yet it's what the data shows. By the way, just looking more broadly at the issue, same poll from Fox News. Overall, 44% believe that abortion should be legal all of the time or most of the time. So the group that believes that abortion should be just completely legal at all points of the pregnancy for any reason, that's uh, 27% of the country. About one out of four Americans believe that. That is also what many in the media believe. That's the dominant view in the media, and it is almost the official perspective of the Democratic Party. Like, that is basically their stance at this point on abortion, one that is shared by only about one out of four Americans. It is an extreme view. Going on to this Fox News story, a majority of Americans, 54 percent, believe that abortion should be illegal all of the time, 11 percent, or most of the time, 43 percent. That's the most popular view, that abortion should be legal in some circumstances, but mostly not. That is the plurality view. Of the four positions, the largest share, 43 percent, believe that abortion should be illegal except in certain circumstances, such as rape, incest, and to save the mother's life. And that's my position. That is the plurality position in the United States, 43%. Some people want to go further in limiting abortion. Others want there to be fewer limitations. But that is what this poll shows, the week that this whole controversy has blown up. And you're not going to hear that in a lot of the media. They don't want you to know that. They want you to keep believing Something that is factually inaccurate about what Roe versus Wade actually means and what Roe versus Wade being reversed would actually permit and what that would mean, the implications in real life. I think that confusion has been cultivated intentionally for a very long time. So you'll see a lot of people trumpeting the Roe versus Wade top-line polling result, and then they don't want to talk about any of the other stuff that I just read to you from this survey because it doesn't fit with their narrative. One more point on this. The Democrats are now saying, we need to vote on a bill that codifies Roe versus Wade. We need to enshrine Roe versus Wade in a federal law. And they've introduced a bill that does not actually codify Roe and Casey which says at the point of fetal viability, right around 20 weeks, states are allowed to start making 
restrictions on abortion, and there are other things that they can implement so long as there's not an undue burden on the right, quote-unquote, to abortion. That is what is currently the law right now. If Democrats wanted to codify that, their bill would not look anything close to what it does look like. The Democrats' bill that they're offering now, under the guise of codifying Roe, which is not true, that is a misnomer, that is a talking point that polls better than their actual position, which is their legislation would ban any restrictions on abortion at all. Abortion would be legal across the country for all nine months until the moment of birth. That is radical and gruesome and disgusting. That is not even the codification of Roe. That is deeply misleading, and you have to ask yourself, why do they have to mislead? It's because their actual position is appalling and very unpopular. All right, a few more thoughts. I'm running late already. It's the Guy Benson Show. Just getting started from L.A. on this Wednesday. Stay with us. Guy Benson will be right back. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I've seen this out there a lot. Popular talking point. If you don't like abortion or you're opposed to abortion, don't get one. Don't have an abortion. And this is presented as some sort of like profound or deep thinking on the issue. Would that apply to any other public policy uh, public policy question, though? If you don't like rapes, don't commit one. If you don't like AR-15s, the assault weapon, don't buy one. If you don't like litter and pollution, don't litter, don't pollute. If you're opposed to a war, then don't enlist. Does that make sense? They'd say, well, guy, those policies, those things affect other people. Personal choice to buy an AR-15 or to go and commit a sexual assault or the concern over the effects of a war, that could affect other people. So, of course, you would speak out. It's not the same thing, except it is the same thing from the perspective of those of us who believe that life begins at least at some point in the womb. So it doesn't just cut it to say, if you don't like abortion, don't get one. At some point, the abortion affects another human being. That is the whole crux. That is the whole point of the abortion debate. That's the conversation we need to have ethically, scientifically, morally, not cop-out slogans. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Thanks for listening. Glad you're with us. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson from L.A. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. Growing. Thanks to all of you. Thank you for that. GuyBensonShow.com. Let's get to Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal. He's also a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, welcome back to the show. 
Hey, Guy, good to be back on the show. All right, let's start with Ohio and the Buckeye State, what happened last night. I think many of the eyes of the political world were on the Ohio Senate primary on the Republican side. It had been, well, quite a circus for many months. And at long last, it's over. And J.D. Vance, who was in the waning days endorsed by former President Trump, did in fact win. He won by a decent margin considering how many people were in the field. And in the earliest test of President Trump's influence within the party, this is definitely, I think, undeniably a feather in Trump's cap. His guy was in third or fourth place. Then he endorsed him, and J.D. Vance is now the nominee for the Republican Party for the U.S. Senate in Ohio. Your analysis of what just happened and the implications. Yeah, Guy, this was undeniably a win for, for former President Trump, and it was a good opportunity. We talked about this at the time, Guy, that this was a very unsettled field for a long time, that none of the candidates were really standing out. They all had a lot of baggage. They all had a lot of issues. Uh, as, as Donald Trump apparently himself said, not many of them are ready for prime time. They, they weren't looking – they didn't have the image you'd expect from a, a United States senator. So to Trump's credit, he saw a, a real opportunity to – put a win on on the board, especially given the fact that he was endorsing a candidate that was polling in third and fourth place throughout much of the the campaign. Uh, He saw a market opportunity, if you will, and and it it paid off in in, in spades. I mean, he won by about nine points. Uh, Vance led both Josh Mandel and and Dolan by about nine points, won about 32 percent of the vote. Now, I think it's important. This is the first big primary to test Trump's influence. In the Republican Party and these, these big races coming up this month, uh, there are a lot of other contests where he's not doing quite as well. So I think it's yep. important to look at the big picture, to, to look at the, the record that Trump has after the month of May and make, a, a, an, 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 make, make an assessment, do the analysis after all these races are finished. Oh, sure. And then we'll have you back to do that. Like I'm interested in Pennsylvania Senate. Is the Dr. Oz thing going to actually work out for him? Looks like he's probably going to lose uh, the big one. In the Georgia governor's race, I guess we'll see that in a few weeks. So we will reassess at the end of May. But as of yesterday, at least, look, there's a crowded field, an unsettled field. Everyone was kind of pretty close. And that was maybe the the optimal situation for Biden or excuse me, for Trump to come in and exert that influence. Right. There wasn't someone who was really head and shoulders above everyone else. Then he took a, a huge risk and went out on a limb for someone. He did. You know, to his credit here, it's not like he picked the number one or the number two person, as we said. It's farther down and catapulted J.D. Vance into victory into first place. But it was not a distant third or fourth place. They were all kind of sandwiched together. So Trump's influence coming in, especially in a state that he won by eight or nine points two times, that was, I think, a a stronger likelihood scenario for him to get the win that he now got. So you've got J.D. Vance advancing to the general election against Tim Ryan. I know Tim Ryan is trying to call Vance an extremist, and there are certainly things that J.D. Vance has done and said that I disagree with. I think in some ways, frankly, he debased himself to get the nomination. He said some pretty wild stuff that's a real departure from the whole brand that he had before he decided to run for public office. But, you know, it is what it is. And on the other side, you've got you know, Tim Ryan, who's a Democratic congressman who I saw on Twitter, you pointed out, he's running ads against his own party in Ohio, which gives you a sense of how things are going for the Democrats nationally. Problem is, 538 has an analysis where they rate everyone on their voting record. 
and, you know, and up against the Biden agenda. And Tim Ryan might be talking a good game and doing his best to run away from the brand. He has voted 100 percent of the time with the Biden, Harris, Pelosi agenda. And that is certainly something that the Republicans are going to, I think, exploit pretty aggressively, or at least they should, in my view. Well, I want to make one more point about Trump, because it was a really brilliant power move on Trump's part. It says more about Trump and his looking at the political future than almost it does about Vance's candidacy. I mean, Trump, Trump essentially, by, by giving the endorsement to Vance, has him, you know, by, 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 he's literally responsible for electing Vance to the, to the Senate, and it gives him a, an ally in the Senate, and, and he's turned around a one-time critic who was being you know, hit on the airwaves so many times by, by other candidates. Yeah, he was an outspoken never-Trumper in 2016. And now he's, he's a convert, and, and the converts can often be the most, most uh, you know, deferential. Uh, so uh, that, that is a, I mean, that's a strategic play by Trump that's clearly played off. Now, Tim Ryan, the, the, the general election, Tim Ryan, J.D. Vance. So, you know, I think uh, your, your analysis is pretty, pretty spot-on, Guy. You know, look, I, I think Ryan is one of the best Democratic candidates running the, the, this election, but he happens – and look, you're right that he has – uh, evolved. He's tailored his positions. He's tailored his message uh, in, in a way that's maybe a little more to the right of how he's voted and how he's, he's legislated in Congress. But, you know, he always has been a, sort of a Sherrod Brown Democrat, a guy from Northeast Ohio who has been concerned about labor issues, ha, ha, you know, been very critical of China throughout his congressional career. You know, maybe the stuff about spending and the stuff about the funding the police, that's, that's a little bit uh, <laughs> reality to the current political moment. Um, but 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 Ryan is a good candidate who might be he might have been someone who could win a state like Wisconsin. It's going to be really tough, given how Republican Ohio has gotten lately for, for Ryan to overcome. Well, and in a Republican year. Politics. Right. It's not just it, the exactly. state. It's it, it's the cycle as well. And I also think it is the inauthenticity of him trying to say, oh, I'm a moderate and I'm you know going to buck my party and I can stand up to them. Well, he's got a 100 percent party line voting record. So uh, that's something that the Republicans will definitely be pointing out. There were some congressional primaries as well. Seems like the Trump picks did very well across the board there. Also, uh, the only sort of counterweight to all of that is the incumbent governor, Mike DeWine, who is not really seen as uh, a Trumpy guy and was being castigated and there were a lot of people in the Buckeye state, more, you know, conservative or Trumpy people who weren't thrilled with DeWine's leadership. Uh, he pretty easily won by big double digits the nomination to remain uh, the governor, or at least the gubernatorial nominee for the Republicans, who will be a strong favorite to win again. So DeWine is sort of the older school part of the party still hanging on there and, and winning his primary handily. Yeah, I mean, there are two ways of looking at DeWine's performance. It was a, a comfortable win, uh, one that positions him as one of the more, more memorable figures, frankly, in Ohio Republican politics. He's a, now a two-term governor, a longtime senator. Uh, he's, he's been around the Republican Party in Ohio and hold, held a whole host of leadership positions over his decades-long career. On the other hand, he only won about 48 percent of the vote. If you combine the two more right-wing challengers, if they, if, you know, if it was a head-to-head matchup, he would be in a little bit of trouble. And, and even the that group, the Republican Governors Association, that that, that monitors all these races for the Republicans, they had to spend over a million dollars uh, to help DeWine out in the primary. So, yep. you know, you could see the Trumpiness of this electorate, as you noted, guy. That you know, if DeWine was over fifty, you know, that would have been a pretty good sign of, of the health of the, the establishment in, in, in Ohio. But he was under fifty. 
And yeah, right around, but just really under. That, that's definitely true. And, and then you had the anti-DeWine vote split. And I think that's probably the type of dynamic that also held back a guy like Matt Dolan from having a chance. You know, if, let's say, Timken had dropped out or, uh, the, you know, the other guy, I'm forgetting his name already, Mike something or other, if they had maybe thrown their support behind Dolan, things could have been different. But, you know, the fields are what they are. The primary options are what they are. Gibbons, it just came to me. That was the other guy. You know, this is the dynamic that voters could choose from. And I know that there are some people saying, oh, if people voted for Dolan in the primary, they should cross over for Tim Ryan. It's like, I mean, good luck with that. I just I don't think that's the way a lot of voters are going to behave, especially this cycle. One other question about Ohio quickly, Josh. Over on the Democratic side, there was a House race that was kind of getting some national attention. It was a rematch from a special election. This was a primary on the Democratic side where you had the incumbent and then you had a challenger from the progressive left, Nina Turner. And Nina Turner is like, you know, the squad type person who lost in the special election primary. She wanted another crack at it here this cycle. And she got just obliterated by the incumbent uh, this time, you know, a second time. And this was seen as a big blow to sort of the progressive left, a strength test that they failed again. I watched some of her, uh, if you can even call it a concession speech. It was very bizarre. She was sort of defiant and blaming it on outside money. She's sort of had some anti-Semitism issues in the past. There was some maybe some subtext to what she was saying and then went on kind of this quasi Howard Dean type screed about how she might run for president and was name checking a bunch of states. It was weird. But the point is, Nina Turner, who was very nasty to a friend of mine on TV once, so maybe that's part of the reason why I'm relishing her getting demolished again. But that was a test for the squad or that wing of the party. And at least in this district in Ohio, not only did they go down, they went down hard. Did you hear much about from the squad lately as Biden's presidency has, has, has gone downhill and, and none of their agenda is, is even going to come close to passing? Not much. And their their political stock is, is dropping like a, like a stone. Uh, we'll see in these remaining primaries or all the primaries that are coming up how, how much influence they have. I don't think Nina Turner was ever really uh, in contention in this rematch because Biden endorsed Chantel Brown. Even the Congressional Progressive Caucus endorsed Chantel Brown after backing Nina Turner the first time around, which was interesting. And there was a lot of good reporting about this, uh, that, that the, the squad and some of the more far-left members of the Democratic Party were so upset at, at the Congressional Progressive Caucus leadership for endorsing Chantel Brown and not backing the far-left candidate, Nina Turner, in, in this race. And, and it, it actually caused uh, Pramila Jayapal, the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, to bow under the pressure and suggest that she might not support any pro-Israel Democrats um, in these primaries anymore that are getting funding from pro-Israel Democratic groups, which is, uh, actually sparked the ire of the Anti-Defamation League, suggesting that might be a, a little bit anti-Semitic. So this is the this is the left in action. This is the candidate that didn't have any support the second time around, uh, but also is really pushing the party, even the congressional progressives uh, within the party, the caucus, far to the left outside the political mainstream. Josh, let's talk about some polling that came out yesterday. Fox News with a brand new survey looking ahead to November. Obviously, inflation, a totally dominant issue. One thing that was actually maybe heartening for the Democrats in the Fox News poll was Joe Biden's approval rating was better than it has been in some of the other polls recently. He was at 45 percent. 
with 53% disapproving, so only minus eight, which for him is actually quite good. A lot of the other polling has him, you know, 13, 14, 15 points underwater. The Fox poll only has him only, you know, eight points underwater. However, in the same poll, that same group of respondents were asked which party they want to support and they want to see control Congress, the generic congressional ballot question, and Republicans in that same survey have a lead of seven points over the Democrats, 46 to 39 percent. So you've got kind of like that slight silver lining with the Biden number saying, oh, that's not as bad as the other polls. Maybe the generic ballot number will be better for the Democrats. And in fact, it's worse than it is in some of the other polls. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I think what you're seeing, especially in light of the, the Roe v. Wade leaks over, over the, the last couple of days, uh, you're seeing the Democrats hoping some of their base comes home. So that might push Biden's job approval up a couple points if, if some of the disillusioned Democrats who generally vote Democrat end up voting for voting for Democrats in the midterms. But you're also seeing that that disapproval number is actually higher than a lot of polls. And, and that that has been pretty consistent, the 53 percent number in the Fox poll. And that, that's consistent with Republicans having that pretty sizable lead on the congressional generic ballot. Uh, you know, the more the more strategists I talk to these last couple of weeks, uh, this is the worst political environment they've seen. Even we've talked about this before, but worse than 2010, worse than 2014 so in the eyes of a lot of experienced democratic strategists so that 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 generic ballot number guy is is very consistent with the numbers that democrats and republicans are seeing when they've been in the field uh going into all these different states and districts and testing the political mood one other survey that i want to get your reaction to morning consult polled all 50 states about their own governors and then they had a whole list of them about who was the most popular the least popular i believe the top 11 most popular governors in the country are all republicans and some at the very bottom are Democrats, including a few who are up for re-election. One that I was just interested in because we talked so much about the campaign last year, so much about then the upset victory in some ways, uh, based on you know Biden carrying Virginia by 10 points. And a year later, Glenn Youngkin gets elected by two or three points in the Commonwealth of Virginia. You're a Virginia guy. You've studied Virginia politics for a very long time. I was interested to sort of see how the people of Virginia would adjust to a Yunkin governorship. And according to this poll, so far, so good. You know, he took on some big battles early on. He won some of those battles on, you know, COVID measures and schools and that sort of thing, school masking. And based on this survey, he is doing quite well. He's 16 points above water in Virginia. This is Glenn Yunkin's approval rating, 51% approval, 35% disapproval. Uh, You know, given all the national attention and some of those wrenching battles in the early days, Plus 16, I think, is a pretty good spot for a guy like Yunkin to be in a state where the electorate looks like it does in Virginia. Yeah, I mean, uh, Yunkin, I think, is having a pretty good first year, both in terms of, you know, at least some notable legislative accomplishments. He's he's struggled in a a few other areas, like getting a gas tax um, implemented getting bipartisan support for that. But but look, he, I think he, he uh, has handled his first year quite well. He's already thinking about uh, expanding his reach and, and maybe perhaps having a, a larger national profile, even even as he's just finishing up that, that, that you know, first first few months, I guess, or uh, first that first year in office. So, um, yeah, he's yeah, like, no, he's not even half a year in, right? He, he came in yeah, in January. Yeah, believe, right. Yeah. <laughs> the time goes, seems like time, time is, 
longer than it actually has been. But yeah, um, the, the 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 morning consult survey showed good numbers for almost every governor. Uh, they tend to have a more favorable view of the, 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 the when they do their polling. It tends to have more favorable numbers for politicians. So I'd take that into account. But look, Youngkin has done a, has done well uh, in, in his first few months in office. Uh, and I think all governors benefit from some of the money going to the states. Uh, a lot of governors or incumbents are going to benefit from some of the government spending. Oh, and also just and the, the unhappiness with Washington, too, where people say, well, I can't stand that town and the people running it. But, you know, maybe in my state things are a little better. Uh, that's another juxtaposition that might benefit some of these folks. Josh, we got to stop there for now. Up on a break. Josh Crossauer, a politics editor at National Journal, Fox News Radio political analyst. Josh, thank you. Thanks, Guy. Back right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It is the Guy Benson Show. So this is of note. Yesterday in the United States Senate, there was a resolution introduced by Senator John Thune, a member of the Republican leadership from South Dakota. And it was a resolution to stop the Biden administration's rule that has forced children in Head Start program facilities to wear masks, even on the playgrounds. These are like pre-K kids forced to mask up, even on the playground, under the Biden administration's rule. And this resolution to stop that passed 55 to 41. So that's the good news. The disturbing news is 41 Democrats, almost, you know, the, the vast majority of Senate Democrats voted no. They want to keep these masks for absolutely no scientific reason on these very young kids. It's crazy. And among the senators who voted no, who wanted the kids to keep wearing masks outside on playgrounds, Raphael Warnock of Georgia, Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire. They are both up for re-election this year. Do take note of that. Another hour coming up on The Guy Benson Show. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour is upon us here on the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson, your host. Thank you very much for tuning in. We're live in Los Angeles for just one more day here, then off to LAX tonight and back home. Looking forward to being in my own bed soon. But we have two beautiful hours of radio to make together before that. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free on demand. GuyBensonShow.com. And a Fox News alert as we begin this hour. The Dow with a big day. Good day on Wall Street. Dow closing up 932 points. Finishing the day at 34,061. And the perfect person to react is our next guest, Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America Reports with John Roberts. That's every weekday from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern time. And Sandra, it's great to have you back here. Thanks for having me, Guy. All right. So why were the markets so happy today? I know there was this uh, half a percentage point interest rate hike that was uh, telegraphed or announced. Uh, Your analysis, please. And the official announcement did come through as expected. And now the markets are expecting that the Federal Reserve can, uh, you know, reasonably slow inflation without driving the country into recession. There's been a lot of worry that the Federal Reserve has been wrong all along. Remember, Guy, all the discussion we had 
together about the transitory inflation that we were living yep. through that did, that did not turn out to be so transitory. So the Federal Reserve got that wrong. And even guys like Larry Summers, you know, a Democrat, were pointing out that they were getting this wrong. Well, how could they get this right? Um, but perhaps they can. So what we just heard was the Federal Reserve raising that key uh, interest rate uh, by a half percentage point, indicating that the next couple of times they'll do the same. And the idea here is to uh, raise interest rates, which raises borrowing costs for the average American consumer. So that's, that's not fun. But this is the price we have to pay to get inflation down in this country. Uh, it's, it's, it's short-term pain for long-term gain, as they say, Guy. Um, and so markets are anticipating that perhaps they can get this right. I'm blown away. This stock market rally happened right in the final hour of the trading day, uh, where the Dow finished above 34,000. That was a 932-point gain. The broader market, the S&P, that's a full 3% rally to finish the day. And anybody who watches the, the you know, the technology stocks, the tech-heavy NASDAQ was the biggest gainer, up 3.2% to finish the day. So there's optimism on Wall Street, that's for sure. Is it warranted optimism? Because I, the hope is that the Fed can make some of these corrections and thread the needle. And I know the what the buzz phrase is like a soft landing. And it's, it's still going to take some time and be painful for quite a while here. But it could be less painful than a worst-case scenario. There are still people worried about the exact same R word, the recession, still happening anyway, the hard landing, which could be potentially difficult to avoid. I mean, the GDP number from last quarter was, I think, shocking to a lot of people. That was a contraction. That was not good. You know, is this wishful thinking? Is this sort of hopeful thinking as opposed to sound analysis? Maybe maybe both. And, and I guess the follow-up question is, when will we start to get a sense really whether or not this is going to work and whether a recession can be staved off because a lot of the experts are still saying yeah 2023 for example could be could be the the year to circle in terms of a recession well there are positive signs in the economy you can't take away from that and the fed pointed right. that out today uh, in their announcement and that's part of the problem though right that's what's causing this inflation while prices keep going up guy demand keeps going up. So the consumer's been resilient to those high prices, which only drives them higher. The idea here is to drive up, uh, uh, drive up borrowing costs, which is already happening. The cost of credit to consumers already been rising sharply. And anybody who's been trying to buy a home lately, you have noticed the huge run-up in mortgage rates since the start oh, yeah. of the year. And therefore, you've got housing affordability going way down in this country. So something's going to give, and the Fed's hoping that's the case. So there's going to be an economic hit here, but the whole idea is to bring prices down uh, over the long term. They set a goal. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe we can get here by the end of the year. But the, the, the Federal Reserve is looking at reaching 2.8% inflation by the end of 2022. You got to you got to deal with the fact that we've been at about eight and a half percent, eight and a half percent inflation. Yeah. Uh, we've we've been living through this, and if they're able to manage it down to that, that would be remarkable. So we'll see. And markets go up and markets go down, guy. I mean, the U.S. stock market already wiped out gains for the year prior to today. So uh, we'll see if this sort of rally is long lasting or just a knee jerk reaction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there are a lot of I think anxious consumers out there and, and just people trying to pay their bills where they see how much everything costs, everything's going up, 
it's brutal. Any wage gains that they've achieved have been wiped out and then some. And then, of course, the idea that a recession might happen if this thing gets played wrong. And, you know, you've got the interest rate the hikes that might be helpful on the inflation front, but harming in other ways. I mean, it's just a very delicate balance and a lot of anxiety and worry out there. I think very well-placed anxiety because people are living through it and they have been for a while. And the people who are just wrong constantly kept assuring them, oh, it's fine. You know, you were mentioning this, Sandra, transitory. And now, you know, what, eight and a half percent, you know, inflation later, they're singing a very, very different tune. And those people are out there very worried, which is why in our new Fox News poll just out yesterday, inflation, of course, is a dominant issue. I mean, it should be. This is affecting everyone. You know, and and um, now that President Biden is still weighing forgiving some of the student loan debt uh, for those that earn less than one hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year, um, you have to challenge Democrats on the fact that that. Already, that polling shows that the American people blame government, blame government spending uh, for their inflation problems. So if you've now got an administration that's only talking about implementing more spending, uh, that's a problem. I just had Sheila Jackson on the show uh, earlier, uh, just a couple hours ago, and we really pressed her because, you know, she's making the case that this is an administration that's acknowledging the inflation crisis and tackling it. But how can you how can that be if we're talking about implementing more spending and paying off the student loan debt? And when pressed in the White House briefing room this week, Jen Psaki was asked, have you been able to calculate the impact that would have on inflation? And she said, no, that is not being prepared <laughs> to make a pretty important move. That is pretty important. And I'll also leave you with this as well. Nikki Haley was on with us today, too. And, Guy, I'd be curious what you have to say about this, because at the end of her segment, and this was really important and it was really smart of her, she said we can't fall asleep here just because Republicans are winning You know, when it comes to polling on inflation and polling on the border. Uh, we can't just sit back and get comfortable as we approach midterm elections. She said very, very specifically that Republicans right now need to be laying out a plan. Okay, she said we can't be the party of just everything Biden is doing wrong. She said we have to show what we are going to do right if we do flip power in the House and or Senate. And that's a really that's a important thing right now, because people want to hear what's the plan. They have it historically because they don't like things right now. What are they going to do if they flip? Yeah, I mean, my reaction is generally, especially in a cycle like this and the mood of the country, what it is. Just being the party of no, the opposition party, we're not them. They're in charge of everything. Do you like it? No. Okay, vote for us. That, I think, could be enough for the Republicans to gain and maybe gain quite a few seats just on that alone. I do think that ultimately to maximize your ability to govern, if and when you win those majorities, you want to have something that you've told the people you're going to do. There's pitfalls in that. There's a trap if you put ideas out there that are unpopular, then you give the ruling party something to shoot at, right? There's a target all of a sudden, as opposed to, oh, the Republicans are bad. They're going to do this. Trump, January 6th, whatever they're going to say. If you put out specific policies that aren't supported by many Americans, that's sort of an opportunity. It's like a lifeline to the Democrats. And we saw some of that from Senator Rick Scott on his tax hike proposal that's been completely rejected by the rest of the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell said, absolutely not. We're not going to do it. But the White House talks about it every chance they can get because it's just they're grasping at straws. So I think if you're going to put out, to Nikki Haley's point, an alternative agenda 
It needs to be something that you get a lot of people in the room. You make sure from the focus groups or the poll tests or whatever that these are consist, you know, consensus things that are going to be broadly popular with the American people, relatively vague, maybe not too specific. Just don't don't score an own goal by giving the Democrats ammo. But you can also put out a, you know, a positive agenda at the same time. I think that is a balance that can be struck. Um, but you have to be careful about it. that. That's my reaction. But certainly this is a moment Republicans could seize on very easily if they do clearly lay out plans. I mean, you look at that Fox News polling and within it also showing that when asked, people do not feel better about their situation than they did now than they did two years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that speaks volumes. Uh, and you look at the uh, lack of Democratic support for President Biden lifting Title 42 at the border. Why? Because he didn't lay out a clear plan as to how they're going to be able to handle what is expected to be a a surge of 18,000 migrants coming over the southern border once that happens. Even Democrats spoke up and said, we need a plan to deal with that. Obviously, a lot of those uh, a lot of those um, border district Democrats, uh, Henry Cuellar and others spoke up big time on that. And without a plan, either party's going to struggle. So I think it's going to come down to that these next couple of months, if people haven't already decided. Yep. And we've got coming up later in the show, about an hour from now, a congressman from the border who is definitely going to want to talk about Title 42. That Fox News poll shows a 36-point margin. The American people want to keep Title 42 to at least stop the bleeding somewhat and not make it worse. We'll talk to Congressman Gonzalez about that next hour. Sandra Smith, our guest here, co-anchor of America Reports every weekday. Thanks, Sandra. Thank you. Stepping aside, coming right back. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thank you very much for listening. I'm going to play a soundbite. And I'm not going to tell you who the person talking is until after the soundbite. And as you listen to Cut 26, play here in just a second, you might recognize some of the points being made. It sounds an awful lot like some of the arguments we have been advancing on this program about kids and schools, learning loss, some of the horrible things that children in America have gone through where they've been set back, where they have been failed by adults, quite frankly, where they have not developed the way that they need to, where they have been thrust into a scenario where they are going to be much less emotionally stable in some ways. There has been so much harm done over the course of the pandemic with some of the so-called mitigation tactics that went way overboard, and continue to go way overboard even after we had quite a lot of data from around the world and around the country proving that kids needed to be in schools, could be in schools safely, and that they were some of the safest people on the planet from severe COVID, right? These decisions by adults continued to be made in the wrong direction, the anti-science direction, for a year and a half. We had Dr. Burks on this show yesterday, Deborah Burks, who told us they had good data on the negative mental health implications for kids being stuck at home trying to, quote, unquote, virtually learn, which was a huge failed experiment. They had that data all the way back in 2020, and the CDC didn't really have any interest in looking at that data 
or changing their guidance or recommendations accordingly. And a lot of people, especially unions and blue state Democrats, they stubbornly refused to look at that data and kept consigning these kids to a really bad situation based on political considerations and tribal politics and absolutely not science. So that has been a point of emphasis for us here on this show. We're not alone. Many conservatives, open school advocates, parents, they've been talking about this for years. And here's someone who sounds like she might agree. Cut 26. Listen here. Our kids are in crisis. And we had a mental health crisis before COVID, but with, and, and Dr. Eng will talk about this far better than I do, but within, but, but for two years of disruption, two years of looking at the screens, two years of not having a normal kind of routine and rhythm, recovery is really tough. I mean, that all sounds correct to me. Recovery is really tough. I know we were told what? Kids are resilient. Well, kids are resilient in a lot of ways, but they shouldn't have to be resilient when deliberate, needless harm is being inflicted upon them. And the resiliency diminishes when it goes on month after month after month for no good reason. The owner of that voice, the speaker in that soundbite, is, drumroll, Randy Weingarten, the teachers' union boss, the American Federation of Teachers. And on social media, I likened this clip of Randy Weingarten lamenting and bemoaning the learning loss and the mental health crisis of these kids because of all the disruptions and not having a routine and not being socialized properly. It's like you're at the scene of a fire and the whole neighborhood is ablaze. And the arsonist who started the fire is there saying, well, isn't this a shame? How could something like this happen? She's one of the arsonists in this whole debacle. I mean, she is in the very top echelon, tiny handful of people most responsible for the harm that she is now bemoaning, that she is now decrying. We know through FOIA documents that the teachers' unions, including hers and her specifically, They influenced the CDC. They went through the Biden administration. They put their thumb on the scale. They had the science, capital S, quote unquote, science altered for their agenda. The science should have put an end to some of this stuff, like school closures and school masking all across the country much sooner. It didn't because of the tireless efforts of people like Randy Weingarten to make sure that that harm kept going on actively for as long as possible. And now here she is. I mean, the gall, the gall for her, of all people on planet Earth, to sit there and sort of wring her hands and say, oh, gosh, the kids have had such a tough time. They've been put through so much. Yeah, by you. You did this. Randy, it's like those stickers with Biden at the gas station with the high prices. I did that. You did that, Randy Weingarten. Just because you're finally saying the things two years later that the rest of us have been saying for a long time, you get no credit for that whatsoever. 
And if you really are disturbed by what's happening to the kids, because it seems like the kids are often an afterthought in all the things that you advocate. If you're suddenly concerned about the kids, maybe the best course of action is for you to resign and your union to be dissolved. How about that? That might be a small step of atonement. You know, I somehow suspect that's not going to happen. What do you think? Amazing, that soundbite. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Andy McCarthy, legal analyst, will be here next. We'll talk about SCOTUS, Roe, the Supreme League, and more. That's next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the week and today's show on The Guy Benson Show. Check out our website, GuyBensonShow.com, all the bells and whistles there, plus the free podcast on demand every day if you can't listen between 3 and 6 Eastern live. That's just totally free of charge whenever you want it at your fingertips, GuyBensonShow.com. From Los Angeles today, we are very happy to welcome back to the show Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, author of multiple best-selling books, including Ball of Collusion, at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, good to have you back here. Guy, always a pleasure. So I want to talk about the Supreme Court drama and this leak that just exploded into the news earlier in the week, and I know it's been a hot topic here and really all across the media. You've now written about it a few different places. You've been on the air talking about it. To me, there's the leak issue. And then there's the substance of what was leaked and what appears to be coming. Let's start with the procedure first, the process first. Uh, it strikes me as shocking, unprecedented of something of this magnitude, and also important. I know some people are saying, and I've seen more of this on the left, oh, the Republicans or the conservatives, they're just focused on the process because they don't want to talk about Roe versus Wade. They don't want to talk about abortion. They want to pound the table about the process. I'm actually happy to talk about both of these things, but process matters in a republic like ours. And when institutions are undermined and processes are blown up, I think that has pretty serious implications for the country. I just want to hear your thoughts on that front first. Yeah, I don't think that the Supreme Court can survive as the institution that we've known it to be and that we rely on if its processes – you know, due process of law that's like sort of basic to uh, judicial institutions in, in our country. So if they can't have uh, confidential deliberations, Guy, it's not a judicial process that has integrity. And just to, just to underscore this point for people in a way I think you could understand it, uh, or that non-lawyers can, can get a better grip of it, what would you think if in trials, not not appellate proceedings, but trials, we, we suddenly decided to drop the time-honored part of a trial where the judge tells the jurors, don't discuss the case with anybody outside the jury. Don't, uh, don't you know, now you can go home, talk to your family about it, uh, read the newspapers about it, do your own Internet research. I think everybody would look at that and say, that's not a trial. Because it has no integrity. You can't have a guarantee that the case is being decided based on what the law says it has to be decided on. This is just the appellate version of that. 
if they can't have confidential deliberations, then they can't have robust legal discussion and exchanges. And we, you know, this process completely breaks down the process of the very important process of reviewing uh, significant cases, including cases with constitutional uh, implications. Could that be the point? You said that the institution can't really survive if this becomes maybe not the norm, but more accepted or something that happens more often. It's unheard of heretofore, and now here we are. Could the person or persons responsible for the leak have that exactly in mind, saying we don't actually want the institution to survive the way that it is because we don't like the outcomes it is reaching, we don't like the ideological makeup of it, and so we want to basically punish the institution? Could that be the point in their minds? I think it could be one of the points, Guy, and and almost undoubtedly is. It's really a different version of packing the court, right, because what it means is exactly what you just said. You want results. You don't want a process. You know, people who are complaining about the emphasis on the process, it seems to me like maybe what courts do is foreign to you because what courts do is process. That's what this this is about. This is what appellate review is about. Uh, if you want to pack the court, then what that means is you're not satisfied with cases being decided according to the the laws and processes that apply. You want particular outcomes. Then you're a legislature. You're not you're not a court anymore because legislatures are what gives us outcomes. Courts are what applies the the rule of law to the to the questions that come up. So I think yes. Um, they want an outcome, and this could very well be along the lines of court packing. I think actually the other thing that's going on here is, I, and I've been thinking about this. I didn't think we'd have to wrestle with it till the end of June. Where you know now it's been accelerated, but I've really always thought, guy, that if Roe and Casey got reversed, and all that happened, which is what should happen, is that abortion as an issue gets returned to the states. I think people are going to wake up the day that ruling comes and realize that the sky really isn't falling, that there isn't a catastrophe, that, like, America has not, um, you know, completely gone up and smoked away the left. Or, like, you know, banned every abortion overnight. That's not what this actually does, even though a lot of people evidently believe that's what it does. And I think that's been a deliberate effort by some people over many years to conflate these things. Andy, last thing on the leak, do you have a theory on on who did it? Because yesterday on the show we were sort of discussing the whole – who done it side of it. And I know a lot of people are talking about one of the clerks, maybe for one of the progressive or leftist justices. I have a friend who's a right-leaning attorney. She texted me. She was listening to the show. She's like, the types of people who get those gigs and who want to be clerks on the Supreme Court are extremely career-oriented, career-minded, intellectual. She couldn't imagine someone in that position being the leaker. I don't know. I mean, all it takes is one real radical in there who decides to buck the trend and take things in a different direction. I still think that's very much a plausible explanation here. Yeah, yeah that would be my operating theory, Guy. I, I hear what your friend is saying about how career-oriented this is. But, you know, look, what's happened here is unprecedented, which means something freaky and out of the norm happened here. Um, and it, it was obviously a departure from the norm. And while I understand, you know, the characteristics of Supreme Court clerks along the lines of what you've just described. I think that the justices themselves 
and the people who the administrative people who work to support the court as an institution have even less of an incentive to leak it. And obviously somebody did leak it, right? So somebody acted in a way that in some sense is inconsistent with what you would think their motivations would be. And to me, you know, what makes a conservative justice or Clark a conservative cuts against the idea of doing this. Because even when you lose, you want to uphold the, the institution and the process. Whereas yeah. the, the left in this country has shown a lot of burn it down tendencies, including after this draft opinion came out, then, you know, they basically screaming burn it down. They at least put on a show of revering norms and institutions when it suits them, namely during the Trump administration. They were very concerned about norms and institutions. But then when things don't go their way and the norms and institutions don't allow them to exercise power the way they feel like it's their birthright to do, then they, a lot of them at least, get the, you know, the torches and the pitchforks and are very, very hostile to norms and institutions that they feel like might be standing. And one quick addendum to that, Andy, if it turns out, and I hope they find the leaker and I hope the person pays an enormous price in their career for this, if it turns out that it is someone on the right side of the spectrum at the court for whatever reason they decided to do it, I will be first in line condemning that person and saying that they should have dramatic, terrible consequences for their career. It's not just because I assume it's a lefty. That's sort of my rational kind of critical thinking here. That's not the reason why I'm upset. I'm upset because of what was done. And no matter who did it, I think that person should be in big trouble and it shouldn't be sort of like a, a tribal thing in my view. Andy, I want to play you a soundbite. This was from President Biden reacting to all of this. And this was a rather curious hypothetical that he floated. I see that Reuters is also writing about this. Are gay rights now at risk? Are other privacy rights now at risk? Could birth control go down there? Sort of dreaming up a lot of new, like, parade of horribles about what might happen next now that Roe versus Wade apparently is going to be supplanted. Here's what Biden said in Cut 27. What happens if you have a state changes the law saying that, that, that children who are LGBTQ can't be in classrooms with other children? Is that, is that legit under the way that the decision is written? What are the next things that are going to be attacked? Because this MAGA crowd is really the most extreme political ex organization that's existed in American history, in recent American history. I mean, first of all, to say that the MAGA crowd is the most extreme political organization in American history is historically illiterate, number one. Number two, I think describing the Supreme Court majority as a MAGA crowd is ridiculous and insulting. I know that's sort of the cheap Trump trick that they're trying here, but, but let's just set that off to the side. What is he talking about? I, he's talking about, I guess, a state who would segregate – the state legislatures would decide to segregate schools – where LGBT kids were in one classroom, but they couldn't be in the classroom with other kids, and that's somehow an outgrowth of Roe going down? What on earth is he talking about? Well, it's always it's often hard to figure out what the president is talking about. Yeah, fair. Um, I, I, you know, I think, guy, that this is just scaremongering, and it also uh, evinces that the uh, or illustrates that they have not read Justice Alito's draft opinion, which is very careful to distinguish uh, the jurisprudence, which which the court has carefully distinguished, that concerns what's called fetal life in the jurisprudence from these other 
um, privacy and, and other Fourth Amendment issues. This is a narrow but explosive area of the law. And I, I must say, Guy, I just wish – I hope our friend uh, Peter Ducey asks President Biden or asks Jen Psaki, um, does the president favor abortions up to nine months of pregnancy? Does the president favor abortions in the third trimester? And then when they can't answer that question, when you watch them hem and haw about it and, and ultimately say they do favor it, I'd like to hear him then explain who the extremist is. Yes. Um, but what he's talking about is nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I've had this from people and people are sliding into my DMs and texting me and emailing me. They're saying some of the headlines, some of the analysis, some of the prognostications now suggest that a Obergefell, the same-sex marriage decision, which also actually came down while I was in L.A. back in 2015, just a weird coincidence. But could that be next? Could same-sex marriage go away? And my answer to them has been I don't think that that is likely because it is a very distinct legal question from Roe versus Wade and abortion on a very different issue. There would be a whole different array of ramifications if they were going to try to uproot Obergefell. I don't see any really sustained push or desire to do that. I know one or two justices have talked about it. There seems to be very little appetite among the other justices, the other seven, at least from what I've seen. And there's the Bostock decision from 2020, which expanded LGBT rights. And that was authored by Gorsuch with the chief joining and then, then the liberals as well. I guess I feel like those fears are overblown, but they're being stoked deliberately to get people riled up and to vote or to donate or whatever. Am I being naive maybe, Andy? Could there be something you know, more dramatic ahead here that the court might be moving toward? And am I giving people a false sense of security, or do you think my analysis holds water from your perspective? Oh, I think it holds water. I, again, I think Justice Alito was very careful in that opinion to, to make clear that he's talking about the cases that involve fetal life and not any of these other matters. But secondly, Guy, even even though those are uh, divisive cases, and I think a lot of them are, are wrongly decided, um, I also think that there's no other area except abortion where you're talking about the state's interest in the protection of human life. It's a total – it's categorically a totally different uh, set of cases and a, a different line of jurisprudence than – I mean, there are, there are some overlap with some of the, the theories and principles that are involved in these cases. But what, what distinguishes abortion from the other ones is the state's interest in human life. Right. Uh, and and here's the thing, Andy, on that point, and this just sort of occurred to me, every year in January, hundreds of thousands of people around the country every year for decades show up, often in the bitter cold, to protest Roe versus Wade and the anniversary because of the implications for human life. Whether you agree that unborn children deserve legal protections, many Americans do believe that. Certainly at some point in the pregnancy, that becomes the case. And it's been a tradition for decades for people to mark that anniversary coming out in huge numbers. You don't see that on the anniversary of Obergefell. You don't see huge crowds of people 
demanding the reversal of same-sex marriage. You don't see Griswold versus Connecticut, the big privacy case from the early 60s. There's not a groundswell of people saying Griswold must go. Roe and abortion are unique in that sense. And I think that actually does matter when we're considering these questions and weighing whether or not these dramatic predictions are overwrought, which I think they very much are. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's right. And I also think, Guy, that clearly what's going on here is the Democrats sense an opportunity to run on something other than Biden's performance and, and you know, the Democrats' performance running Washington for the last two years. I don't think it's going to work because I think this issue is, is of more importance to the Democrat donor class than it is to rank and file people in the United States, even people who are supportive of abortion rights. There's, there's simply too many other things. As uh, my friend Zan DeSanctis at National Review said, uh, I heard her say this earlier today, the number of people who vote on abortion as like their defining issue in an election is microscopic. And when you go into the details, it tends to be just about as many pro-life as pro-choice people who have that at the top of their list. So this simply is not something they're going to succeed on running on. They're going to have to run on Biden's record. Yeah, and public opinion, as we discussed at the top of the show, is actually very complicated and complex on abortion, and it may not be sort of the clean advantage that the pundit class seems to think that it is because the pundit class tends to be pretty far left on this particular issue. Andy, we've got to leave it there. Substantive, interesting conversation as usual. Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor on The Guy Benson Show. Andy, thank you. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. No one can make the judgment to choose to abort a child based on a decision by the Supreme Court. I think goes way overboard. Back on The Guy Benson Show, did you catch that from President Biden talking about aborting, quote, a child? I think he may have strayed from the talking points there a little bit. They don't like to usually acknowledge that it's a child. That really goes to the core of this whole debate. Meanwhile, you had Yamish Alcindor, just a journalist, down-the-middle journalist on MSNBC, who said this in Cut 29. They will be forced to have um, pregnancies that they cannot afford to terminate and pregnancies that will then turn into children. Pregnancies that will then turn into children. That is, in fact, yes, what pregnancies are. They are indeed children in the womb at some point. I think most Americans certainly agree with that. Alcindor also tweeted that she visited with some workers at an abortion clinic reacting to the reports this week about what the Supreme Court's going to do. And she said that these abortion clinic workers said they felt gutted by the decision and, quote, it felt like someone had died. What an interesting choice of words on all three of these that we just mentioned, given the context. The Guy Benson Show resumes after this, our final hour coming up with Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas on the border. That's next. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour here on The Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday, the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious and refreshing. 
and alcoholic. So 21 plus only, please always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where they're sold. They're really expanding. A huge national rollout is underway. More states to come soon. TheLongDrink.com. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free of charge every single day. And that's on demand after the show's over, a little after 6 p.m. Eastern time. Joining me now is Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican from Texas, the 23rd congressional district down there. And, Congressman, welcome back to the show. Good to have you again. Hey, Guy. Thanks for having me back on. So last week I was down right around the border, right in your district. I was in Del Rio. Then I went to McAllen. I was there on a reporting trip for townhall.com. We did the show from the border Monday and Tuesday of last week. I learned a lot. I was embedded with the Texas National Guard and DPS, seeing what they're up against with the feds sort of having at least one of their hands tied behind their back by Biden policies up in Washington. I just wonder, while I was down there, you were part of a contingent of Republican congressmen, including Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, in Eagle Pass. And that was right around the discovery of the body of that National Guardsman, Specialist Evans, which was such a horrible tragedy. What was your experience last week bringing some of your colleagues to the border, and what were their impressions of what they saw and learned? Yeah, this is this is every week for me, and it, it's really hell. And it's not only for me; it's everyone that I represent. We are we are essentially a living uh, hell every day. I appreciate though. I appreciate you going down and and seeing it firsthand. I appreciate Townhall.com uh, covering it uh, because it's different when you see it, and I know you know that it's different when you see it on TV to where you're talking to people that live it, you know, that are living it every day. And, you know, I, I was uh, fortunate enough to host uh, Kevin McCarthy, Elise Stefanik, and, and other members of our conference. And this is the 10th Codell that I've hosted. It's actually the second time that McCarthy's come down in the past year. And what we saw was, um, I mean, we saw nothing has gotten better. It's only gotten worse. You know, 30 minutes before we arrived in Eagle Pass that morning, uh, they recovered the body of Bishop Evans. And, and uh, it was just a very somber moment uh, and it's a reminder that every day people are dying on the border and whether they're migrants, whether they're, uh, you know, National Guardsmen, it's all terrible. You know, this man, Bishop, was 22 years old. He had served his country honorably in, in Iraq and Kuwait. He survives war overseas just to be killed on the southern border. And a lot of that is due to Biden's failed policies. What did you think of the White House response? I don't think we heard anything from President Biden himself. And I know that he prides himself on being empathetic on these things. He ends all of his speeches with, may God protect our troops. He jumped all over Border Patrol with the whipping smear last year, and then he's had nothing that I've seen personally to say about Bishop Evans. The White House and the spokesperson for him, Jen Psaki, said, oh, well, of course they mourn the loss, but then quickly pivoted to basically blaming the state of Texas and Governor Abbott, saying, well, he's the reason that Evans was down there. What do you think of all that? You know, campaigning is about dividing yourself from the, your opponent. Governing is about uniting. And it really feels as if this administration has never gotten out of the campaigning mode. All they do is divide us. And this was another example when the administration could have taken the high road. And instead of, you know, being petty with the blame game, I mean, a young man died. You know, a young man in the Texas National Guard died. Instead of going, whatever, you know, the, the, the reporter that asked the question, instead of going, you know what, we should all honor this man regardless of, they didn't do that. And they haven't done that 
time and time again. They don't know how to govern. The, the, the House the House Democrats are no different. I mean, they're just trying to divide us. We're seeing with they're seeing it with the Roe versus Wade stuff. I mean, it's just one thing after another. Instead of what I believe this country needs is we need so we need leadership that brings this country together, and that starts by honoring our fallen. I mean, this man, you know, just brief on his story. He's, he's imagine he's standing guard. He sees two people fall into the river. He takes off his his armor and he jumps into the river uh, by instinct. He swims nearly to the other side. The current takes him under. He ends up drowning. The two folks that jumped in, they were drug smugglers. Of course, they get saved. I mean, it's the way the, the world kind of works. They get saved, and Bishop Evans passes away. He, it was a selfless sacrifice. All the all the administration had to do was just say the man's name and honor him, Bishop Evans. Congressman, just a few days ago, one of our colleagues at Fox News, Brian Yennis, is reporting from the border, and he was near Eagle Pass. He was filming the river. There were people trying to cross the river, and a young man roughly my age drowned right in front of the cameras, and he put that footage out on social media. It was extremely difficult to watch. You can see him trying to keep his head above water, gasping, gulping for air, and then going under, and he died. And it just struck me as for all the talk about equity and compassion and humanity and all these things where they sort of dress up some of their open borders policies, really when you incentivize illegal immigration as powerfully as they have, and they have done so extremely powerfully, it's hard to describe it really as anything other than anti-humanitarian. It is anti-compassionate because you are putting people at grave risk for no good reason because they're desperate to come to this country or they feel like they can have an advantage by coming here and doing so illegally. It just really angers me that some of the people who are responsible for this chaos, who have fueled it intentionally, try to take the high road morally on this stuff. It's actually very immoral, isn't it? It is. It is absolutely immoral. And you know what this administration has done? This administration is deadly. We've seen it. They've gotten 13 Americans killed in our Afghanistan. Now we've got a National Guardsman killed in, in uh, Eagle Pass. Migrants, as you mentioned, I watched that same video. It's very difficult to watch. Sadly, this, is, this has been happening for over a year. Migrants are dying every single day. Last year, it was over 500. And, and they're not they're horrific. They're horrific deaths. And this administration has turned a blind eye to it. And it's become deadly because they don't want it, it's all about one thing. They don't trust they don't trust House Democrats to be able to have a conversation on immigration reform. So they've completely checked out of that and they're going, you know what? The the White House, the executive branch, we will use our tools to do an immigration reform policy. You know, you had Mayorkas last week come out with a six-point plan on how we're going to secure things. That is not a border security plan. That is an immigration plan. And, and this is important, Guy. Border security and immigration are two separate topics. The only time they get muddied is when people don't understand the difference. I've been an advocate. Look, you can be completely in support of border security against drugs coming over, terrorists, these gang members. You can be completely against that. No one should want that in their community. And you could be open and compassionate to those that want to come and live the American dream. But through the front door, you know, maybe they don't get citizenship. Maybe they don't get access to vote, but maybe they, they, they can work and, and we can do those type of things. These are the conversations that Congress should be having and that the White House should be having. There's nobody home.
Yeah, and the thing is, Congressman, I'm in favor of some of those solutions and maybe some of the compromises, something like a DREAM Act, a path to legalization for some people, but maybe not citizenship, you know, expanding legal immigration. I'm open to that stuff. But right now, I'm kind of not, because until the border crisis is resolved and the border is actually secured and we are taking enforcement seriously, all the other stuff seems like a complete waste of time and a distraction. We can have that conversation at some point. But not now, not with the door wide open. It seems totally crazy to me. And and the scope of the problem, the extent of the problem is stunning. I mean, I saw it firsthand. It was very eye-opening, seeing it with my own eyes at the border. Then you've got the numbers. And I know sometimes people's eyes glaze over and they hear these numbers over and over again. But here's an exchange. You mentioned Mayorkas. He was on Fox News Sunday. Brett Baer got him to sort of very casually confirm what is a shocking number Cut 25. Listen to this. The DHS has directly released at least 836,000 aliens into the United States since January 21st. Then you add the 207,000 unaccompanied alien children, UACs. And then your Border Patrol estimates somewhere from 200 to 400,000 gotaways. In other words, encounters that uh, are not evade apprehension. So and, that, and gotaways have been a challenge. From the beginning. Yeah. From the beginning. But that, that matches your numbers roughly? I believe so. So that's 1.4 million people that he basically just confirmed haven't just been encountered at the border, but have been released into the country or have entered into the country and escaped. 1.4 million since Joe Biden took office. I mean, that's 150 percent roughly the population of Delaware, Biden's own home state. That number on top of all the huge just waves of apprehensions at the border. It's just, it's staggering. It's almost hard to quantify or at least wrap your brain around the number. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, and, and to your point, look, immigration reform starts with border security. I have been very vocal on that. I think all members of Congress, regardless of where you fall on the spectrum, uh, need to start that, need to understand that that everybody needs to have a secure border. And then we can have some of these conversations on some of these other things. And and we need to hold the line there. As far as the numbers, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the first year in office. And their whole plan from day one was whatever Trump did, we want to do the opposite, whether that was on energy, whether that was on national security, whether it was on uh, the border, it was the opposite. And it, it, it's seen what is happening. You know, this Title 42 is extremely important. You know, everyone's kind of have given up on it, that it's going away. I haven't given up on it. I think there's an opportunity here, Guy, for, for Congress uh, to, to come together and hold the line on this. And, you know, it, 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 it expires here in 19 days. And, uh, you know, myself and Jared Golden have a bill that, uh, that keeps it around. There's uh, 24 members of Congress. 12 Democrats and 12 Republicans that have signed on. I'm going to keep putting pressure on these. And I'm going to basically boil it down to this. You know, if you're a moderate Democrat and if you don't sign on this bill, if you don't go to Pelosi and say, hey, before any COVID package or or Ukraine package or before anything gets done, Title 42 has to be in there. If you don't do that, then you are fair game, my friend. You you need to be gone. I don't you know, I don't care where you fall on the spectrum. You need to be gone and replaced with someone else. The, the, the other thing I would say is how does this problem get solved? Because we, we identify the problem a lot. We, we complain or, or highlight the problem a lot. But how do we solve the problem? And I want to highlight this. This is important. 
we saw these thousands of Haitians under the bridge in Del Rio, and they were, you know, for about a week, and then all of a sudden they were gone, and the cameras went away, and you know, it was kind of mission accomplished. Well, the reason why that that, that those Haitians stopped coming. First off, 16,000 out of the 18,000 were released into the country. That's a yeah. problem. But that's not, that's not what – exactly. But that's not what stopped them. What stopped them was 2,000 of those Haitians were returned back to Haiti. It's a small amount compared to the overall amount. But it was – that was the first time the administration started using these repatriation flights in a real way. And when the word got out that, hey, you're getting returned back to Haiti, all of a sudden the Haitians started coming. So one of the things I've, I've talked to Mayorkas about is, look, you got this six-point plan. I don't see repatriation flights in there because we all know, we both know, that's what, that's what stops this problem from expanding. No, it's not a serious plan. I mean, that's the bottom line, and they're not taking it seriously. I mean, there were hearings last week where Mayorkas said that they are – handling the challenge of the border crisis very effectively. He said it's been effective management. He said they maintain and retain operational control over the border. We had Tom Homan on this show recently who said there are people he's talking to at the border, officials who say that's absolutely not true. Of course, Mayorkas has said and insisted repeatedly that the border is secure, which is just utterly laughable. More than three million people have been encountered at the border or are known godaways since Joe Biden took office, more than three million. And he says the border is secure. It just it blows my mind that he would even put his hand on the Bible, raise his right hand and then testify to something like that. But you mentioned Title 42, Congressman. I want to come back to that because there's a new Fox News poll out yesterday where they asked the American people about this. And by a 36 point margin, 63 percent to 27 percent, the American people say Title 42 needs to remain intact. At the border. I mean, only about one out of four Americans think it's a good idea to do what Biden is about to do. I don't know if they care about public opinion. It seems like they've got other agenda items here that is their maybe their priority overall. But is there a chance you were talking about your bipartisan bill? Is there a chance that whether it's enshrining Title 42 or just allowing something very similar, these expedited expulsions to become much more prevalent? Is that the type of thing that could realistically actually get a vote in the House? Because I feel like Nancy Pelosi might say, oh, that's cute, whatever, you know, the Problem Solvers Caucus or whatever. Here's a pat on the head. We're not going to do that. Our base would go crazy. The squad would squeal. So it's not going to see the light of day. That's sort of my worry here. You're, You're trying. That's all you can do. But if you've got Pelosi with that gavel running the show, I just don't think any real solutions stand a chance. No, it, it is a difficult situation, and it's a frustrating situation. But, one, I'd say the fact that most Americans even know what Title 42 is, you know, I mean, this is a, a very detailed policy uh, uh, product that, that, honestly, folks know because places like you, you know, uh, have covered it. You know, Republicans mm-hmm. have gone to the border. I've hosted 10 delegations, and we're talking about this. All, all of our caucus is talking about it. But to me, this is, this is a line in the sand. May 23rd is a line in the sand for what, what I consider people that are pragmatic. And you know what? If, if that group can't deliver – we mentioned Problem Solvers uh, Caucus. If that group can't deliver – and what can they deliver on? And look, I'm part of that group, right? I'm, I'm, I'm willing to put the line in the sand. I'm willing to put all the chips in the middle and to go, this is the date. And you know what? If we can't do that, if we can't deliver for the American public, like you said, it's not, 
it's not one percent or two. Everybody is saying the same thing. We need to keep Title 42 around until there's a plan in place to which we can transition off of it. If, if, if the middle, if the if the prob, uh, uh, if the uh, pragmatic folks can't solve it, and, and I think they're the ones that could solve it because at the end of the day, Nancy Pelosi isn't taking my call. You know, uh, she probably isn't taking Henry Cuellar's call. But you know, she if she doesn't take that those folks that are in real danger. Then, then who is she listening to, and and what is the purpose of you know getting up there and just yelling and screaming and blaming somebody else? Uh, yeah. you know, I did 20 years in the military. It's about results, and you know if, if we can't keep Title 42 around past May 23rd, then all all bets are off, and we need a clean house. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican from Texas, down along the border. That's his district. You can hear the passion and the urgency in his voice. It's an urgency that I understand even better than I did before, having been down there in his district not long ago. Congressman, we always appreciate your efforts on this and your time here on the program. Thank you. Thank you, Guy, for covering it anytime. And we'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. And we're back here on The Guy Benson Show. So I'm in L.A., and yesterday there was kind of a scary moment at a comedy show here in L.A. where a crazed audience member jumped onto the stage while Dave Chappelle was out there and tackled Chappelle, physically tackled him. The guy apparently had a knife. He's been arrested. They dragged him backstage after the incident, and he was pretty badly beaten up and mangled himself. I don't know what he expected. You can't do that. That's just awful and scary. But amid the chaos... Chris Rock, another comedian who was there, came out on stage and got off a fantastic one-liner, Cut 31. Was that Will Smith? You can hear some of the audience reacting to what had just happened. And then Rock grabs the mic. Was that Will Smith? A plus. Slow clap. Chappelle's okay, thank goodness. The Guy Benson Show continues next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show from Los Angeles for just one more day. Earlier in our first hour on the program, we caught up with Josh Crossauer of National Journal and a Fox News radio political analyst breaking down, among other things, the big election results in Ohio last night. Here's part of my conversation with Josh. Let's start with Ohio and the Buckeye State, what happened last night. I think many of the eyes of the political world were on the Ohio Senate primary on the Republican side. It had been, well, quite a circus for many months, and at long last it's over. And J.D. Vance, who was in the waning days endorsed by former President Trump, did in fact win. He won by a decent margin considering how many people were in the field, and in the earliest test of President Trump's influence within the party, this is definitely, I think, undeniably a feather in Trump's cap. His guy was in third or fourth place. Then he endorsed him, and J.D. Vance is now the nominee for the Republican Party for the U.S. Senate in Ohio. Your analysis of what just happened and the implications. Yeah, Guy, this was undeniably a win for, for former President Trump, and it was a good opportunity. We talked about this at the time, Guy, that this was a very unsettled field for a long time, that none of the candidates 
were really standing out. They all had a lot of baggage. They all had a lot of issues. Uh, as, as Donald Trump apparently himself said, not many of them are ready for prime time. They, they weren't looking. They didn't have the image you'd expect from a, a United States senator. So to Trump's credit, he saw a, a real opportunity to put a win on, on the board, especially in the, given the fact that he was endorsing a candidate that was polling in third and fourth place throughout much of the, the campaign. Uh, he saw a market opportunity, if you will, and, and, it, and it paid off in, in, in spades. I mean, they won by about nine points. Uh, Vance led both Josh Mandel and, and Dolan by about nine points, what, about 32 percent of the vote. Now, I think it's important. This is the first big primary to test Trump's influence in the Republican Party and these, these big races coming up this month. Uh, there are a lot of other contests where he's not doing quite as well. So I think it's yep. important to look at the big picture, to, to look at the, the record that Trump has after the month of May and make a, a, an, an, make, make an assessment, do the analysis after all these races are finished. Oh, sure. And May. we'll have you back to do that. Like, I'm interested in Pennsylvania Senate. Is the Dr. Oz thing going to actually work out for him? Looks like he's probably going to lose uh, the big one in the Georgia governor's race. I guess we'll see that in a few weeks. So we will reassess at the end of May. But as of yesterday, at least, look, there's a crowded field, an unsettled field. Everyone was kind of pretty close. And that was maybe the the optimal situation for Biden or excuse me, for Trump to come in and exert that influence. Right. There wasn't someone who was really head and shoulders above everyone else. Then he took a, a huge risk and went out on a limb for someone. He did you know, to his credit here, it's not like he picked the number one or the number two person, as we said, it's farther down and catapulted J.D. Vance into victory and into first place. But it was not a distant third or fourth place. They were all kind of sandwiched together. So Trump's influence coming in, especially in a state that he won by eight or nine points two times, that was, I think, a, high, a stronger likelihood scenario for him to get the win that he now got. So you've got J.D. Vance advancing to the general election against Tim Ryan. I know Tim Ryan is trying to call Vance an extremist, and there are certainly things that J.D. Vance has done and said that I disagree with. I think in some ways, frankly, he debased himself to get the nomination. He said some pretty wild stuff that's a real departure from the whole brand that he had before he decided to run for public office. But, you know, it is what it is. And on the other side, you've got you know Tim Ryan, who's a Democratic congressman who I saw on Twitter, you pointed out, he's running ads against his own party in Ohio, which gives you a sense of how things are going for the Democrats nationally. Problem is, 538 has an analysis where they rate everyone on their voting record and, you know, and up against the Biden agenda. And Tim Ryan might be talking a good game and doing his best to run away from the brand. He has voted 100 percent of the time with the Biden-Harris Pelosi agenda. And that is certainly something that the Republicans are going to, I think, exploit pretty aggressively, or at least they should, in my view. Well, I want to make one more point about Trump, because it was a really brilliant power move on Trump's part. It says more about Trump and his looking at the political future than almost it does about Vance's candidacy. I mean, Trump, Trump essentially, by, by giving the endorsement to Vance, has him, you know, by, 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 he's literally responsible for electing Events to the to the Senate, and it gives him a an ally in the Senate, and, and he's turned around a one time critic who was being a, you know hit on the airwaves so many times by by other candidates 
Yeah, he was an outspoken never-Trumper in 2016. And now he's, he's a convert. And, and the converts can often be the most most uh, you know deferential. Uh, so uh, that that is a I mean that's a strategic play by Trump that's clearly played off. Now Tim Ryan the, the general election Tim Ryan J D Vance. So you know I think uh, your your analysis is pretty pretty spot on, guy. You know, look I, I think Ryan is one of the best Democratic candidates running the, the, this election, but he happens to, and, and look you're right that he has. Uh, evolved. He's tailored his positions. He's tailored his message uh, in, in a way that's maybe a little more to the right of how he's voted and how he's, he's legislated in Congress. But, you know, he always has been a, sort of a Sherrod Brown Democrat, a guy from Northeast Ohio who has been concerned about labor issues, ha- ha- you know, been very critical of China throughout his congressional career. You know, maybe the stuff about spending and the stuff about the funding the police, that's, that's a little bit uh, <laughs> reality to the current political moment. Um, but 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 Ryan is a good candidate who might be he might have been someone who could win a state like Wisconsin. It's going to be really tough, given how Republican Ohio has gotten lately for, for Ryan to overcome. Well, and in a Republican year. Politics. Right. It's not just it, the exactly. state. It's it's the cycle as well. And I also think it is the inauthenticity of him trying to say, oh, I'm a moderate and I'm you know going to buck my party and I can stand up to them. Well, he's got a 100 percent party line voting record. So uh, that's something that the Republicans will definitely be pointing out. There were some congressional primaries as well. Seems like the Trump picks did very well across the board there also. Uh, the only sort of counterweight to all of that is the incumbent governor, Mike DeWine, who is not really seen as uh, a Trumpy guy and was being castigated and there were a lot of people in the Buckeye State, more you know, conservative or Trumpy people who weren't thrilled with DeWine's leadership. Uh, he pretty easily won by big double digits the nomination to remain uh, the governor, or at least the gubernatorial nominee for the Republicans. He'll be a strong favorite to win again. So DeWine is sort of the older school part of the party still hanging on there and, and winning his primary handily. Yeah, I mean, there are two ways of looking at DeWine's performance. It was a, a comfortable win, uh, one that positions him as one of the more, more memorable figures, frankly, in Ohio Republican politics. He's a, now a two-term governor, a longtime senator. Uh, he's, he's been around the Republican Party in Ohio and hold, held a whole host of leadership positions o- over his decades-long career. On the other hand, he only won about 48 percent of the vote. If you combine the two more right-wing challengers, if they, if, you know, if it was a head-to-head matchup, he would be in a little bit of trouble. And, and even the that group, the Republican Governors Association, that that, that monitors all these races for the Republicans, they had to spend over a million dollars uh, to help DeWine out in the primary. So, yep. you know, you could see the Trumpiness of this electorate, as you noted, guy. That you know, if DeWine was over 50, you know, that would have been a pretty good sign of, of the health of the, the establishment in, in, in Ohio. But he was under 50. And yeah, right around, but just under that. That's definitely true. And and then you had the anti-DeWine vote split. And I think that's probably the type of dynamic that also held back a guy like Matt Dolan from having a chance. You know, if let's say Timken had dropped out or, uh, the, you know, the other guy, I'm forgetting his name already, Mike something or other, if they had maybe thrown their support behind Dolan, things could have been different. But, you know, the fields are what they are. The primary options are what they are. Gibbons, it just came to me. That was the other guy. That full interview with Josh Krasauer available online, GuyBensonShow.com. Also, the podcast is free every day, the entire show, on demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, an analysis of popular television shows and the partisan breakdown 
of the types of Americans who watch those shows. Where do you fall? We'll talk about that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on today's Guy Benson Show from Los Angeles. I'm actually heading to the airport, LAX, after the show. Hop on a plane, come home. I might try to actually squeeze in a quick pit stop at In-N-Out Burger. I did the Whataburger thing in Texas. We had a big conversation about In-N-Out. I haven't had it in quite some time, and I haven't squeezed it in yet on this trip. And I can't be in California for six days and not get an In-N-Out burger. So that's the goal here. Hopefully I can just get that on my way to the airport. I should have enough time. We'll see. I will report back, obviously. It is The Guy Benson Show. And you can get our podcast every day for free. It's on demand, GuyBensonShow.com. So I saw this tweet. It comes from Echelon Insight, which is a pollster that I pay attention to. One of my friends, Kristen Soltis Anderson, works at Echelon. She's one of the partners there. And they actually did an interesting survey of the American people and their favorite television shows. And then they mapped the TV shows on a graph based on people's politics. So the x-axis on this graph is more Democratic to more Republican. And they have the names of the shows sort of darker blue all the way to darker red and then purple in the middle. And then the y-axis is higher turnout or lower turnout, meaning people who are more or less likely to actually turn up and vote on Election Day. And I'm looking at these results, and a few things stand out to me. Number one, they don't apply to me at all, because I would definitely be on the more GOP spectrum and also on the high turnout spectrum. I lean Republican, I am a conservative, and I vote basically every time. And so based on that, two of the shows that I like the best are actually aligned with high turnout Democratic voters, namely Law and Order. I like the original personally better than some of the spinoffs, and they have rebooted the original, which I'm happy about. And then the Great British Baking Show, which I love, and it's completely delightful. There's no drama. It just makes me happy. It's in some meadow in the English countryside, and they're all very kind to each other and have cute little accents, and they make cookies and bread and that kind of thing. And I guess that is a big popular favorite among high-propensity Democratic voters, which I am not. With Law and Order, it looks like Law and Order is the farthest left, although even a little bit farther left is Breaking Bad, another show that I really like. Breaking Bad, I did not watch it while it was on the air. I binge-watched the entire thing after it ended. And boy, was that quite a ride, that show. With Brian Cranston, who's fantastic. The whole show's, I mean, if you can handle some pretty intense violence, that show is a masterpiece. Now, the Breaking Bad audience, apparently, is a little bit more inclined to stay home on Election Day. It's a lower turnout group. The lowest turnout group which is also a Democratic lean, is people who watch a show called Euphoria, which I don't watch. I think it might be like LGBT-related. I don't watch it. I know some of my friends watch it. And it's a very lefty show among people who don't really vote very much. Now, as you get closer to the center of the spectrum, 
you start to get shows like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, still a little bit left-leaning, but kind of in the center. Same with Stranger Things. Ted Lasso is there. Seems like Ted Lasso is a show that is watched by high turnout individuals on both sides. People who vote love watching Ted Lasso. And we do like Ted Lasso in our house, although we did sort of drop off midway through the second season. We have to finish it. The Crown is right in that neck of the woods with Ted Lasso as well. Then you've got sort of right down the middle, the purple shows. There's only a few of them. They are Heartland, which I had never heard of until I saw my mother, apparently, is a big fan of Heartland. She was watching it when she was staying at our house recently. Ozark, which I watched a little bit of. Jason Bateman, I think Laura Linney's in that show. I know it's got a huge following. I watched the first season and couldn't get into it, even though it's kind of like up my alley. For whatever reason, it didn't do it for me. But Ozark is a purple show. Manifest is another one of those purple shows where it splits the audience blue and red. And then what's interesting is the highest propensity purple show in terms of highest turnout voters splitting exactly red and blue is Bridgerton, which kind of checks out. Based on my friends who watch Bridgerton, they are very ideologically diverse, and they are definitely gung-ho voters. So Bridgerton and Ozark are the real uniting shows. And then you get onto the right side of the spectrum, and there aren't that many shows, at least the ones that were polled by Echelon, that are clearly more enjoyed and more highly viewed by Team Red and more Republican-leaning voters. One of them is NCIS on CBS. That is a big one. That's a very popular show in general. It's one of the most popular shows in the country, and it attracts a more red-leaning audience. Then you get further out, further conservative, out on the right, and you've got Yellowstone, Kevin Costner, Montana. In my interview, when was that, last month? month and a half ago with Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, I asked him towards the end of the interview, what do you do for fun? How do you kick back? Do you have any shows that you binge watch? And the only one that he raised that he brought up off the top of his head was Yellowstone. And apparently that is very, very popular among conservatives out there. I should watch it. Someone was pitching me on it yesterday about why it's good. Actually, my friend that I went to dinner with, Teresa, she's like, oh, it's awesome for all these reasons. So I might need to get into Yellowstone. I'll give it a shot. And then last but not least, there's a little red dot all the way up in the upper right-hand corner of this matrix. So this would be the most conservative, highest turnout show if it were a show. But it's actually a little red dot that says none of these shows. Quote, Voters who watch none of the shows tested or polled are among the highest turnout voters. So I guess people who are super into politics and very conservative, probably a lot of you, the shows that I just mentioned aren't really on your radar. You don't watch any of them. The Crown's in there, Handmaid's Tale, This Is Us, Parks and Rec, Game of Thrones, Criminal Minds, S Creek, Succession, The Office, Squid Game, Grey's Anatomy, and Lucifer. Those are some of the other shows that I had not mentioned. They're all sort of left-leaning, the ones that I just mentioned. If you don't identify with any of the TV programs that we've just run through, you are probably a very high propensity, very conservative voter. And I wonder what the 
causal effect is there? What are those people watching? Aside, of course, from Fox News Channel, which we always appreciate. People are like, oh, I have Fox on my TV all day long. And I always say, thank you very much. I have probably invaded your living room or kitchen from time to time then. But as a consumer of television, and I think we're sort of in something of a golden age of television, I was immediately intrigued by this poll. And obviously, I am not exactly in the mainstream of conservatives when it comes to their tastes in television. But that's okay. I was sort of fascinated by it, and I wanted to share it with all of you. And I tweeted about it the other day, so you can go find it in my feed if you want, at Guy P. Benson on Twitter. That's also my handle on Instagram, Guy P. Benson. And here at the show, it's at Guy Benson Show on both platforms. Well, I've got to catch a ride to LAX to head home. We'll be doing the show back from the home base in D.C. tomorrow and Friday. We will talk to you then. Have a great evening. Thank you for listening to The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.